But here's what I know. As we talk about those songs, how there's a point where uh, in all those songs, it seems like, you know, there was just this depression and, and the, the bad had won. I, I know in every one of us today, every person that's listening to me, however that is, you've had a moment or moments in your life where you were overwhelmed by your circumstances, those times where you didn't know if you were going to make it through the day or how you were going to survive the circumstance, whether that be the diagnosis and treatment of cancer or the realization that a loved one had gotten hooked on drugs, possibly the unexpected news that you had lost your job when you were already living paycheck to paycheck. It could have been the news from your spouse that the relationship is over or maybe just the constant criticism by your boss that has you feeling worthless. But there are a number of circumstances, but my guess is everyone here has had your moment. You've had your moment when you said, I don't know if I can take it anymore. Now, what happens in these moments for many is they turn their attention to God. And at least immediately that attention might not even be properly focused, but if handled well, that can ultimately be the way that we find our hope. Hope to press on and hope for the future. In Psalm 22, we see David expressing emotion that would be normal for those times when you feel overwhelmed. David doesn't give us the circumstance behind these words, but remember, this is a psalm, or as we have noted, it is a song. And David, like songwriters today, he didn't give the circumstances, but the particular circumstance doesn't really matter. What is important is the emotion that is being experiencing and ultimately the hope that he is pointing us to. For let's not forget that the words of the Psalms are different than many songs today because these words are inspired by God and they are a part of our holy scriptures. They are meant to do more than just help us relate or to help us express our emotion. They are ultimately meant to point us to God who is our source of strength and our help. It's really to point us to God who is our source of life. And so let's do this. Let's slowly make our way through the psalm to see what David shares. And then we're going to go back and learn from what he has written. The psalm starts in some shocking ways as David writes these words. In verse 1, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night but I find no rest. When you know that David, who wrote this psalm, and and you know that David was a man who passionately loved God, even called a a man after God's own heart, we're a little shocked when we see his words of despair. To hear the words that even seem a little accusatory towards God. However, David is just being real here. Whatever it was that inspired the words led to the reality that in the moment, David felt abandoned by God. He felt that God was not even close to him in this moment and that he was weary from seeking God. He said in the day, he found no answer from God and at night, he could not even rest. Though this might shock us a little, we all have to admit that as I said, we've all been there before. We've had difficult things happen in our lives where we were praying, asking God for answers, asking for him to save us, and it seemed as if God was silent or if he did not answer. We've all been there. And one of the reasons we've all been there is because when we ask something of God, we expect him to answer immediately, do we not? And so when it doesn't come immediately, we say, God, where are you? Or there's times we ask God to do something and we're asking very specifically. And if God doesn't answer our prayer specifically the way that we ask it, then we thank God he doesn't care. But clearly the first thing we see in this psalm is David just expressing the raw emotion or feeling abandoned by God as we often do. However, David's words do not end here. Look at what he says next in verse 3. He says, yet you are holy and thrown on the praises of Israel. 
And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In, in you, they trusted and were not put to shame. And so here's what we see in the, the midst of David expressing his frustration and his feelings of abandonment. He turns to remembering who God is. He first declares that he knows that God is holy. And then he begins to remember God's history with the nation of Israel. As the king of Israel, David was a part of God's history with the nation, but he surely had in mind here much more than his personal experience. He no doubt was remembering God's deliverance uh, through the wilderness and how he had taken them out of Egypt, how God had helped them win battle after battle in the promised land. He knew that time and time again, the people had trusted in God and God had taken care of his people. In fact, why don't you do an exercise sometime? Go and read through the Old Testament and you yourself will see how God had continually taken care of his people. And so with this statement, David for a moment gets his eyes off his problems and on to God. He begins to look to where the solution lies rather than simply dwelling on his problems. However, this doesn't last because what happens next David again described the desperateness of his situation. Look at verse 6. He said, But I am a warm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. It seems in this verse that David says, Well, God might have been there for Israel, but I am a warm and I am not a man. God doesn't care for me. And he says, in fact, my situation is so bad that not only am I miserable, but all those around me are making fun of me. They're even making fun of me for saying that I trust in God. I am being mocked because God hasn't delivered me. David, in a way, is questioning God's care for him personally. This is surely a tough place to be in a place that some here might have been in because if you are a believer and you profess your belief in God, there will be those who will say this. Well, how come God isn't helping you? Or they will say, I mean, if, if, if there is a God, how come you are suffering so? Even people who are not believers are quick to blame God when something goes wrong in your life. And so what we see is after a moment of remembering what God has done for Israel, David focuses on himself and his problems again, and he returns to his lamenting. However, this round of complaining doesn't go on forever either because look at what David then says in verses 9 and through 11. He says that you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. See, here's what David does. He begins to focus on God again. But this time, it's not how God has been there for the nation of Israel, but how God had been there for him. David recognized first that it was God who gave him life, and that God had been there with him throughout life. David recognized that his relationship with God was so special that he had not known a time in his life that God had not been there for him and that he had always trusted in God. And because of this relationship with God, David made a plea. He asked God to be with him because he realized that there was no one else who could help him. David recognized that his friends, they couldn't help him. They knew that his family couldn't help him. He even knew that his strong army couldn't help him. There he declared in this song that there were no one who could help him. There was no one he knew could help him but God. And so what we see in this moment is though although David had expressed his frustration and despair, he ultimately knew that he needed to place his faith in God. He knew he needed to trust in God. Now, maybe at this point we expect things to change for David. He has moved to a place of trust in God, so everything now surely is going to be good. I mean, surely God responds to David by rescuing him and making everything right. 
But look at what David continues to say in verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shared and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of the earth for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. In other words, David recognized that things were still bad. And so he continued to cry out to God for help. Now, at this point, we maybe are tempted to become a little overwhelmed or discouraged ourselves. We might read this and think, well, if if God is not going to help David, then surely he's not going to help me. We are tempted to lose hope along with David. However, if we do, we have a major problem. We have failed to read everything, for David is not done. In fact, beginning with the second half of verse 21, we see a dramatic change. The tone of the entire psalm moves from one of lamenting to one of celebration. Look at how David continues into verse 21. He says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in all of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the affliction, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. For you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingships belong to the Lord, and he rules over the nation. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming of generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Folks, listen, what a dramatic shift. There is no lamenting here. There is no complaint to God or about God. There is no feeling of being overwhelmed. The whole section is a praise to God and about God. It is a declaration of victory. And though we don't know the details of how things were accomplished, David declared to God, you have rescued me. And he made a plain that God had not abandoned him and that God satisfies the hungry and that those who seek God praise him. He also moves to the fact that God not only had rescued him, but there is this anticipation that all the ends of the earth shall remember what God has done and turn to the Lord. Then he ends with the summation of this, that God has done it, that God is the one to be praised. There is no doubt the end of this psalm is an overwhelming shout of victory. David's attitude is completely changed, and we are left with a hungering for this experience ourselves. We want the same kind of transformation in our life. We are left to say, I want to be able to praise God in the same way as well. In fact, that leads us to a place where here's what we need to do. We need to consider what are the lessons that we are to gain from these words of David. 
How can we experience this same victory? Well, the first thing that we need to learn is this, is that biblical lament is healthy. You know, it is fair for us to assume this, that since God had these words recorded for us, there's something here for us to model. And the first thing that we can know is that it is okay for us to take our complaints to God. Too often, I think at least as believers, we think that we have to keep quiet with our complaints about God or or, or that we shouldn't complain to God. Yet David demonstrates just the opposite. In fact, it might be strange to you to consider, but consider this, all right? Think about how this honest lament is actually a deepening of David's relationship with God, all right? What does one gain by not telling the truth? Can you tell me? Nothing, right? You don't gain anything by not telling the truth. Uh, you, you tell me. I mean, if, if David had just kept quiet about the way that he felt or maybe even pretended that everything was okay, what would he have gained? Nothing. But the fact that he was honest with the way he felt and went honestly to God about his frustration, it allowed those feelings to be dealt with. It allowed him to move even past them to something greater. In fact, one of the key things, though, is that your lament for it to be biblical, it means that you don't stay in your place of complaining or being overwhelmed, but you actually do like David and you turn to God for your answer. Again, that's what David here is doing. Even in the complaint, he was looking to God for the answer. That is what David demonstrated when he started to remember and share what God had done for Israel as a whole and then what God had done for him personally. As David took the time to move from just complaining to considering God's actions in the past, it began to change his attitude about the present. And because of what actually happened here is something neat, the difficult circumstances deepened David's relationship with God. Have you ever thought about this? The fact that all difficulty ultimately is meant by God to draw people closer to him, no matter what it is. In fact, even difficulty, that is difficulty of God's punishment in your life for sin is meant by God to help you seek, you know, confession and have your relationship with him restored. It's never to push you away. I was even thinking this week as I studied how difficulty even has a way of calling atheists to seek God. Have you noticed that when difficulty comes, what atheists do? That's when they begin to ponder God. Now, now they might not express a belief in God, but they go to a place of saying this, that if God were real, then he wouldn't let certain things happen. Now, in that moment, here's what they're actually doing. They're actually acknowledging that they are not in control and they need someone greater than themselves. They are recognizing that they really need God. If not, why else would they even bring up the idea of God into the picture? Now, some atheists, here's what they do. They eventually recognize their need But others refuse to accept their need for God. It's kind of like when we talked, if you remember, we talked about the three circles and how to share Christ through the three circles. And we talked about brokenness that comes in people's lives. And we can look at the brokenness that comes because of sin. And we can say it's a bad thing. But when in that brokenness, a person gets to the point that they realize I cannot fix myself and I need someone else to fix me. And in that brokenness, it allows them to turn to God. Then here's what happens. That brokenness becomes an open door to go deeper with God. It becomes a door for one actually to come into a relationship with God. It is that brokenness that can take a person and have their lament turn into praise. You see, when we lament biblically, our complaint turns to shouts of victory. 
but only because our relationship with God goes deeper. That's what makes it biblical lament, and that's what makes it healthy. Biblical lament truly takes one closer to God, not further away. Now, not only do we learn that biblical lament is healthy, we also learn this, that our circumstances do not change God. There are two key verses that really turn David's vision. Those verses are verse 3 and verse 9. And both of those verses are preceded by David speaking of his difficulty, but both verses start with these three words, yet you are. Look at how they start. Verse 3 starts this way, yet you are holy. And then verse 9 starts this way, yet you are he who took me from the womb. In both these verses, David moves from his perspective of the circumstances to the truth of who God is. David recognized that God is holy and that he is sovereign over life. We could even state it this way, that whatever God does is right and that whatever happens in one's life is a part of God's perfect plan. You see, those are truths about God that do not change because of our circumstances. David began questioning God, maybe having his moments of doubt about God caring for him. But here he stopped relying on how he felt in the moment. He stopped letting his circumstances dictate his life. And instead, he turned his eyes and minds toward the truth of who God was. And he began to look at the unchanging character of God. You do know this, right? That God does not change. Are you, are you aware of that? You, you know, we are people, so we change, do we not? And in fact, there is a time in my life, I'll just be honest with you, I hated just about every green vegetable, right? The only one I liked was green beans. I'd eat green beans, but anything else green, a salad, I wouldn't touch in a salad. I wouldn't get near it anywhere. But you know what? Because I'm a person, I change. And guess what? Now, I love salads. There are times I go out to eat and all I get is a salad. I even, believe it or not, I'll eat raw broccoli of all things, right? You see, I'm a person, I change. But here's what I'm gonna tell you. God never changes, we're reminded this in James 1.17 where it says this, and I'm quoting for the New Living Translation because I think I really nailed it here. It says, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. You see, even if your circumstances are bleak, you need to know that God doesn't change. And so when you look into the scriptures and you see that God is faithful, you can know that he will be faithful to you. When you see that God is a God who promises his presence, you can know that he will be there with you. When you see that God is loving and patient and kind and forgiving, he is all those things for you, no matter what is going on in life. He is also the God who is working all things for good for those who love him. And you can be assured that he is like that for you. Your circumstances do not change God. And so look into the scriptures and know God because you, the more that you know God, the more that you can have hope in your circumstances. Now, with that said, we also learn this from this psalm, that those who trust in God will praise him. All right, look at, look at verse 26 again, all right? Verse 26 says, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Now, now look, right before these words, David had expressed his complete confidence that God had not hidden himself from those who are suffering. So here he makes it clear that God is the one who satisfies and that those who seek him shall praise him. Now, that is ultimately the key. Those who are satisfied, those who are able to praise our Lord are those who seek him and place their trust in him. 
As you look into the scriptures, what you see over and over is God being with those who trust him. You see God providing in various ways. Now, let me say this. That doesn't mean that everything always turned out the way that people wanted to or would have preferred, but they always turned out for the best. When they think about the life of Joseph, who is one of my favorite biblical characters, things didn't always turn out great for him, but they always turned out the best. When he was a young child, he was his father's favorite, and so things were good for him as a young boy because, again, his father basically gave him everything he wanted, but his brothers got jealous. So if you know his story, when he got older, they sold him into slavery, telling their father that he was killed by a wild animal. And so he ends up a slave. He ends up a prisoner or slave. At that point, what we know is this, though. Joseph didn't stop trusting in God, and so he became the best slave possible, so much that Potiphar put him in charge of his whole house. And so at that moment... Things are good again, really, for Joseph until Potiphar's wife accuses him of rape, and so he gets thrown into prison. So now he's a prisoner. Things are not good again. But what did he do there? He continued to trust God, became a model prisoner, was put in charge of the prison. Things are good for him again, right? On and on when you see his life, there are times that it didn't look so good, but in the end, God always worked it out for the best, even the point that you know this that Joseph became second in charge of all of Egypt, only second to Pharaoh, and was in a position to save his family from a famine and ultimately to save the Hebrew people. God worked in his life for what was best. It didn't always look that way to Joseph, but God worked. God worked for good. Now, we can look at the story also of Stephen. His outcome was a little different. He faithfully proclaimed the name of Jesus, letting others know that Jesus saved But he was taken into custody by some of the Jewish leaders who said he was speaking blasphemy against God, and then they eventually stoned him. Some would say that God wasn't there for Stephen. But according to Acts 7, this is how his death went down. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, now, according to this, we might judge that Stephen was overcome by the circumstances. But what we actually see is this, as you read that text, that God was there with him. God gave him a vision of Jesus standing at his right hand in his way saying, Stephen, I'm here for you. And in that moment, yes, Stephen lost his life for faith in the Lord. But here's what we say. Through this incident, here's what happened. The gospel of Jesus Christ began to spread like it never had before. And if you read, you realize that the garments of Stephen was laid at the feet of a man named Saul. And many believe Saul, who was looking on that day, was so touched by even Stephen's reaction that it led into the fact that Saul eventually became Paul as God spoke to him and read the truth to him. And Paul became the greatest missionary who ever lived. And so as he watched Stephen die, God was even working something in Saul's life that helped him become Paul. In other words, God was still working even when we would say, oh, he must have abandoned Stephen. Here's what we all have to understand is that God is at work in our lives, but it doesn't always work out as we want, but God is working. Hear me. God is working out a greater plan. Okay. In Hebrews 11, you can read what we call the hall of faith. You read there about people of faith who we might say got what they asked for, or at least what we would say things turned out good for them. 
You can also read in that chapter about people of faith who seem to not get what they asked for. We would at least say things didn't turn out well for them. But they are all called people of faith. And in the end, here's the summation of all these people of faith. Whether we judge that things turned out good for them or whether we judge things turned out bad for them, here's the summation of them all in Hebrews 11, 39, and 40. And all of these, though commended through their faith, look at this, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, we may struggle to understand these words because we struggle to understand how some did not receive what was promised. Noah is listed in Hebrews 11, and we say he got what he promised. God delivered him through the ark. He got what he was promised. We can look and say, well, Joseph got what he promised. Again, he became a leader in, 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 in Egypt, and he saved his family. He saved the Hebrews. Joseph got what was promised. We can look and say Abraham listed there, got what was promised. He got that child when it appeared that it was hopeless for him to have a child, and from that came a great and mighty nation. We can look and say David became king. He got what he was promised. Our summation would be they did receive what was promised. But we have to grasp that what is promised to us and what was promised to them is not really fulfilled in this life. And hear me, and is not received simply by us getting what we want in this world. Hebrews 11 says that God has provided something better for us. It is ultimately something that we are looking forward to, which really takes me what we need to see in this psalm, that David is being used by God here you ready? To point us to our true source of joy and peace and satisfaction. And it is something that goes beyond our current circumstances. Verse 26, again, is a place to really see this shift when David says, may your hearts live forever. The words of Psalm 22 are not, ready? Are not about a momentary relief. It is about us finding eternal peace. We see further this, this truth in the words of verse 27 that say this. Ready? All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before him. Let me pause and ask, has that been fulfilled? I think we would all recognize today that is something that is yet to happen. Not all the ends of the earth right now are praising the Lord. Not all families of the nation worship before him. You see, this is something that has not happened yet, all right? And what David is reminding us here is that we see in Psalm goes beyond David and his circumstances. In fact, here's one of the reasons that we don't even know what pr prompted David to write this psalm. It's because of this, that God inspired David to write this psalm in a way that it pointed to something much greater than even David understood in the moment. For this psalm is pointing to Jesus Christ. When you look at this psalm, it is definitely what we would call a messianic psalm. It was a psalm written 1,000 years before Jesus was born. But when you read it, it paints a picture of what would happen to Jesus Christ. There are nine specific things you can look in this psalm and see that was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. There are even specific things in this psalm that though David wrote them, they most likely had nothing to do with his own experience. For example, verse 16, look at what it says. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I'll challenge you to do something. Go back and read about the life of David in the Old Testament, and you will never see an incident where his hands and his feet were pierced. 
But God inspired David to write his feelings in this way because God was laying the foundation for what would happen to Jesus when his hands and his feet would be pierced. You can read in this psalm and see many other references to the crucifixion of Jesus, such as verse 18 where it reads, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Compare that to the words of Mark 15 that says, and as they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. This entire psalm really points us to the solution to our problems, points us to our source of strength, points us to our peace, and that answer is Jesus Christ. In fact, this psalm starts with the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You might also recognize those words from Mark 15 as we read there that it says, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about this. On the cross, Jesus quoted Psalm 22. One commentary that I read in regard to this verse pointed out how the Jews who would have been watching there would have recognized the words of Psalm 22. Keep in mind, this was a song of worship. This was a song that they would have been familiar with. They would have heard the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they would have thought to themselves, all right, Psalm 22. Now, it might not have been called Psalm 22, but they would have thought of this psalm. And you say, well, Brother Scott, no, they, they probably really didn't do that. Well, let me ask you a question. If I said these words to you on a hill far away, what would be your next words? Stood an old rugged cross, right? If I said these words to you, amazing grace, you would say, how sweet the sound, right? Because those are songs that you have sung and you know them and just the first words would have sparked and you would know the rest of the song. Some of those you can sing by heart from beginning to end. And the Jews standing there would have heard Jesus sing, say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they would have thought to themselves, why is he singing Psalm 22? And here's why they would have asked that question above all, because they knew Psalm 22. Do you remember how Psalm 22 ended? Psalm 22 ended in victory. Psalm ended in praise of God. And here they would have been looking at Jesus hanging up on the cross and they say, why is he quoting that one? Because he's dying on a cross. He's dying on, as a criminal. There is no hope in this moment. Even for them, they were being crushed because here was the man that they thought was gonna be their Messiah and he is dying. And they're saying, why is he quoting Psalm 22? Because it ends in victory and all we see is defeats. Well, Jesus on the cross was quoting Psalm 22 because he knew something. Because he knew in that moment what looked to all who were looking on that circumstances as defeat, who looked like, like there was no hope. He knew that what he was doing in that moment was providing ultimate victory and he was providing ultimate hope. What Jesus knew he was doing in that moment was fulfilling all the words of Psalm 22. Go back and read it. How about how those folks mocked him, how they surrounded him, all those things. Again, cast lots for his clothes. He knew he was fulfilling Psalm 22 and he knew this. He was providing the opportunity for someday all nations to worship the Lord. He knew he was making it possible for your heart and my heart to live forever. He knew in that moment he was accomplishing something great and that was greater than just getting us past our momentary discomforts and the momentary difficulties of this life. What he was doing in that moment was taking care of our greatest need. He was taking care of our sin. 
And what Jesus knew in that moment is this was going to end in victory. This was going to end in praise of God because a short time after he died on that cross, Jesus knew he was going to raise from the dead. In fact, if I've not convinced you yet, we think about what he was doing upon that cross. We know in John 19, Jesus spoke some other words from that cross, and the words were, it is finished, right? He said, it is finished. Well, how did Psalm 22 end? If you saw how the ESV translated, it says, he has done it. He has done it. It's over. It's finished. In fact, one, uh, Ray Stedman, who is a scholar, says literally the Hebrew can be translated there. Guess how? It is finished. Either way, what we know that Jesus Christ on the cross finished God's work. He died for our salvation. He paid the price for our sin, and he makes possible for us and all of mankind the ability to worship our God and find peace. See, when all is said and done, here's what we need to understand. Our hope is found in Jesus. You know, you you might be in the middle of circumstances that you have been lamenting to God, and that's okay. I'm going to say to you, take your frustrations to God. He can handle them. But at the same time, know that God hasn't changed because of your circumstances. He still loves you. He is still faithful. He is still there, and he is working out a master plan. And what God wants you to do in the midst of your circumstances is to trust him because if you do, you will find in the end, you will be able to praise the Lord. Even if your answer doesn't come out, come this side of heaven, you can know that through Jesus Christ, God has taken care of your deepest need. He has taken care of your sin problem so that if you trust in Jesus, your heart can live forever. And one day, catch this, you will be able to stand with people of every nation and worship the Lord. You will be able to praise God for all that he has done and how he has worked in your life. You will be able to say, he has done it. And he has done it well. You see, my prayer for all listening today is that your lament would turn to praise as you place your trust in Jesus. And as we get ready to close, we're going to go to a a song of invitation. It's a time of reflection. And what I want to ask you to do today is, is where are you looking to for your hope? Are you saying today, if my circumstances just change, everything's going to be great? No. If your current circumstances change for the better, there's probably some other bad ones right around the corner, right? I hate to burst your bubble, right? But we've experienced that in life. Your answer isn't just there. Your answer today is in Jesus. And I want to ask you today, are you turning your eyes up to the Lord? God hasn't changed. He is there. He will be there for you. He is faithful. Today, if you place your trust in him, this is what I know, you're going to be able to praise him. And so today, what I want to ask you to do, have you turned your eyes, ultimately, have you turned your eyes upon Jesus? I want to know, are you looking to him today? If you do, you can find peace in the midst of your circumstances. Whatever today you have in your life that's worth lamenting, I know it can be turned to praise as you look to the Lord. And so today, let's turn our eyes upon Jesus. Let's look to him in these moments and say, Lord, I need you today. All right, would you pray with me? Father, as we bow here into your presence again, we thank you, Lord, for the way that you work. We, we're thankful that you can even write words a thousand years before they happen. And you're so unchanging that they come true. And Father, we know, again, these words written thousands of years before Jesus came, came true upon that cross and what you did through Jesus by having him crucified for us. We also know, Father, that they turned to praise as he was resurrected. And you've done it. And you've done it well. Father, today, would you speak to our hearts? 
Yes, some of us have come today and we're overwhelmed with our circumstances. We wonder how we can press on. But today I pray that you help us turn our eyes to you. And today and you find hope that we can even do like David, that we can recount who you are, recount your holiness, that we can recount today that you've been working in our lives in ways that are too numerous for us to count. And in that, Father, we'll remember your character and that you are true and that you don't change. And so that even today we can place our trust in you for the moment and then for all of eternity. So bless this time of invitation, Lord. Speak to hearts, I pray. And as I do pray these things, Father, I pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.